This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. everyone. This is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the MindPod Network. I'm super duper excited to have my guest Ethan Nickturn on with me today. Uh, Ethan is a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition and the author of One City, A Declaration of Interdependence, as well as his most recent book, which is phenomenal. We'll be talking quite a bit about that today, The Road Home, A Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Path. He is also the founder of the Interdependence Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to secular Buddhist study as it applies to transformational activism, mindful arts and media projects, and Western psychology. Nick Turn has taught meditation and Buddhist studies classes and retreats across the United States since 2002. He is based in New York City, though today we're speaking to him out in Seattle. Uh, Ethan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great, great to be here, and it's uh, beautiful and overcast in Seattle. Nice. It's a weather, right? <laughs> no surprise there. Um, I am looking out at a very nice and sunny day today, so uh, I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> so, Ethan, I wanted to start before we get into this book, which, like I already said. It's tremendous, and uh, I'm not one of those kinds of people that is going to say that just because a guest is on. Most likely, I wouldn't have the guest on if I didn't dig their book, but I really, really adore this book. Um, I'm a huge fan of it, but before we get into it, I wanted to talk a little bit just to give our listeners some background on you. So before we get into the book, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? What led you to the spiritual path? Um, I mean, obviously, your father, David, is a very well-known meditation teacher, but, you know, was it your dad or what brought you into the Shambhala Buddhist tradition? Yeah, yeah. Um, great. Um, well, th- thanks for the kind words about the book. For sure. Um, yeah, so I grew up, both of my parents actually um, my, uh, were students of Chogyam Trungpa, the, the Tibetan Buddhist right. uh, teacher who was a pioneer, kind of wild and brilliant man who yeah. uh, came to North America in 1970 and in in the early 1970s, both my parents um, started studying with him. Um, and they were a musician and a, and a painter at that point, and that's how they met. Um, so when I was born in 1978, they had both been already studying Buddhism for, I think, five and eight years, respectively. And um, so I grew up in the Shambhala community, um, in, but grew up in mostly in New York City. And... Um, you know, they didn't, my parents didn't really push meditation on me, although I did take a class when I was about 10 for kids uh, from the Shambhala Center that was really boring, um, but also uh, really, um, uh, I think it did give me some seeds of how to look at um, one's own mind, that I have a mind and it's not necessarily uh, absolute reality. Right. Um and then it was really in high school and towards the end of high school that I started meditating. And I kind of did it a little bit like I would sit for 10 minutes when I got home from school, but I would kind of just uh, keep it secret just because I wanted it to be my own thing. Right. And um, in college, I got really uh, had my first major heartbreak uh, my first year of college. And that's when I decided I was a Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> and um and uh, really started uh, was you know studying practicing a lot um, 
and was also, you know, at that point, which this is the late 90s, um, the different uh, meditation communities, especially Shambhala that I was part of, had become more middle-aged. And, um, you know, even in the 70s, everybody was, uh, you know, 20s and 30s. And at that point, you know, I had, I, I, I don't, won't say that the practice uh, saved my life in college, but I did definitely have bouts of depression and um, ex- a lot of existential questioning and just kind of not knowing what I wanted to do with my life, who I was, et cetera. And it helped so much to just kind of develop a sense of um, friendship towards myself mm-hmm. that uh, really wanted to see how to, um, you know, it, it seemed like it was really applicable to a lot of people, but it seemed like for whatever cultural um, reasons, uh, it's, um, it wasn't attracting a lot of young people in, at least in North America at that moment. So I was really interested in how it could be, you know, um, sort of transmitted and understood in a, in a, you know, early 21st century generation X now, I guess, millennial, um, uh, although I'm, I'm generation X, um, cultural context. So that's how I, why I started teaching and, and out of that and out of working with people, this, I, these ideas of just how do we apply these philosophical and psychological and ethical teachings in the Buddhist tradition to, you know, lots of different Western areas, you know, and obviously we're living in an age where the interaction between Buddhist thought and Western psychology is getting more and more widespread. Um, also the notion of activist and social justice work and just, kind of naturally with my temperament as a as a writer as a creative person um as the you know child of two creative people i i tend to hang out with creative people so the application of buddhist thought to um to um creative processes is really um part of what i'm interested in so i'm out of that sort of applying buddhist principles that's where the interdependence project came from Mm. and um yeah, so that's that's kind of my my story. So I grew up with it, but I don't think you can inherit um, being a Buddhist. It's something that you really have to. It's it's really so it's so universal, but it's so personal that. Right. Uh, and and then in uh, 2010, I was asked uh, by my teacher Sakya Mipam Rinpoche to be a, a senior teacher in the Shambhala tradition. So um, that was about five years ago. So um, it's it's weird to be. 32 and become a senior teacher, but, um, uh, I, I just try to, um, use it as an opportunity to, to work with people and to, uh, uh, I think we each need to find our own way to be empowered with spirituality, with meditation, with the Buddhist teachings. So, um, and that's where I'm at now. <laughs> that's, that's like incredible. And congratulations. I mean, yeah, like you said at 32, that's quite a feat. Um, really incredible. And so your teacher is the son of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, correct? That's right. He's the he's the eldest son. Yeah. yeah. So so it's a direct um, passing of the lineage. That's amazing. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship learning? You know, from from him. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because there's different. One of the things I talk about in the Road Home is different models for student teacher relationships. Right. And, you know, one of the models that I think is often very uh, misunderstood, but also is very beautiful in that comes from the Tibetan as well as other systems is the guru model. So, you know, Sakai Mipamamshe is my guru. Yeah. And that often means, you you know, unlike having a mentor, um, which is the way I work with a lot of uh, students or, you know, having sort of a more uh, personal interaction. I mean, we do have a, a personal relationship, but a guru really sometimes people are not that close to their guru, meaning like I wouldn't ask him, um, I'm, I'm not sure I would, you know, t- take him out for coffee ever, you know, or right. something like that. Um, but there is a sense I've, of, of, you know, he's been my guru for the past uh, 14, 15 years. And there's, um, there is a sense in that relationship of really admiring someone I think whenever somebody has a guru, there can be a lot of kind of celebrity worship mapped onto this, which some of comes from our Western culture, but I think that's also in Tibetan devotional culture as well. And I think it's much better if you kind of uh, 
view that kind of teacher relationship as um, uh, a, a process of uh, working with a, a hopefully brilliant and trustworthy, but also just flawed human being. You know, this whole right. path to me is about learning how to be more human. You mm -hmm. know, and I think Sakyong, he's a really he's a really smart guy. He's a really loving guy. He's also very clearly, naturally an introvert who's mm -hmm. had to kind of um, work with that, you know. So I have quite a lot of respect for watching him work with his own kind of shyness and um, hesitation because I, I resonate with that um, yeah. a lot personally. So, I, you know, there's the, the, the canon of teachings in, in the Shambhala system is really broad and vast. And um, I... Uh, so I've learned quite a lot of different things, but I think, um, you know, just working with one's own, um, with one's own obstacles and showing up in a brilliant way. I think he's a really, he's a, for me is a really great example of, um, somebody who works with themselves really well. And, um, the other thing about him as a teacher for me is he's, he's probably the most disciplined person I've ever met in my life, just kind of really impeccably disciplined, which can be kind of um, uh, intimidating, you know. Uh, his, um, his movements are really, um, he's not sloppy in any way. I don't think I've ever seen him be sloppy, and I'm sloppy all the time, so <laughs> it's, it's a good thing to have that, um, uh, you know, it can be intimidating, but it's nice to have that kind of measure of precision, et cetera. And, right. you know, I got to see a couple years ago Thich Nhat Hanh do a calligraphy wow. event at ABC Home. And he had the same same quality of um, a total uh, elegant precision um, that uh, I think some great masters in these Buddhist lineages, especially Asian Buddhism, have just learned how to be incredibly precise. You know, they don't come at it from the perspective that I think we come at it from, which is a, a more distracted and fragmented cultural space. So um, right. it's nice to watch that without judging ourselves for being less precise, but it's nice to um, watch that and uh, try to learn from it, like how we could be more um, precise with our um, intention and our actions. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I, you know, I, I'm glad you, you went in, you know, went in depth. Thank you for that. But also the, the word guru can be a tricky one. A lot of people yeah. hear that and they shy away. I know for myself for many years, that was the case. I did not like that word. Um, but you know, through my own process as well, I've come to know Maharaji Ram Dass's mm -hmm. great teacher as my guru, though, you know, he's obviously not alive today. So I have living teachers and mentors that people I can talk to, but it's a beautiful experience to have that heart guru. And, um, but, but yeah, the importance of having someone you can actually be in real time with, I think there's something to be said for, for that to help guide you along the way and, and hold you somewhat accountable. That was something I learned a little late in my path, but I'm grateful, you know, better late than never. Right. right. So thank you for sharing that. Um, so let's get into the book, which, again, tremendous job on this. Um, I wanted to start out with what you describe as commuters. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you talk about that in the introduction. And you discuss how human beings have the tendency to get lost in transit and how we lose touch with feeling like we belong and trusting in our own minds. Essentially, again, what you call lost in commute. So um, if it's cool with you, I want to read it just a few paragraphs to kind of set you up to elaborate further on that. Very cool. Awesome. So you write the Sanskrit word samsara, which traditionally represents the summation of all our confusion and destructive patterns of behavior literally means wandering around the Tibetan word for a sentient being caught up in confusion. Drawa could be translated as always on the go. I like to think of this word as meaning commuter. From the standpoint of our struggle, we are wanderers, commuters addicted to a state of transit, always thinking that we will be most satisfied somewhere other than here. We may struggle our whole life on a relentless and unsettling journey from cradle to urn, lacking the tools to get comfortable in our own skin and safe in our own mind. We get lost again and again in the existential transition of life, 
blindly hoping that a true and permanent home lies around the corner. After just a bit more struggle to prove ourselves, a bit more time figuring out how to belong in our life. So often, our idea of home is whatever we hope will magically be waiting for us after the current disruption. For the commuter, home becomes a shifting mirage in an increasingly repetitive desert. In this desert, we experience our past as a collection of lost opportunities. Maybe I already missed my chance at a true home. Memories blend into a potpourri of nostalgia. Maybe I really was at home once upon a time back in the day, but then I lost it or it was taken away from me. The future becomes a carnival of hope and fear. We clutch at the belief that home will be waiting for us at the end of our current transition. Life gets better. It's got to get better. I just need to find the right blank. Filling in this blank is fraught with stress and anxiety. From this point of view, human life is a nonstop quest for anything that makes us feel temporarily safe within the rudderless journey of aging. Ultimately, what we are seeking is a feeling of belonging in our life. It's the feeling of relaxation that comes with knowing there's a place for us right here in the present moment. But if we never feel like we belong in the present, we quickly become cynical and apathetic. Human zombies on a commute from moment to moment, day to day, year to year. It's a lot of really great stuff in those few paragraphs. Um, and honestly, I, I could go a number of directions with with most most of it, but I would love to open the floor to you, Ethan, and go wherever you would like from there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, so that's from the introduction, and you know, right. this this the the book kind of it, it it is meant to serve as the framework of the book. The four sections of the book that follow the introduction are meant to serve as hopefully a very contemporary and emotionally resonant overview of the kind of framework um, of Buddhism, especially from a Shambhala standpoint, from right. the personal, the interpersonal, to the collective levels of practice. And um, But really with the, the kind of emotional core of the book is this notion of home, you know, and, and a sense of belonging and a sense of safety. And also my fascination with just this irony between this notion of belonging and, and feeling awake and compassionate within the present moment versus all these analogies and metaphors and symbols in traditional Buddhism that are about being on a quest, on a journey, um, on a path. The whole thing is called a path, right? And this is interesting. This is always fascinating me that there's all these analogies of going on a journey or the teachings are sometimes called the vehicles right. you know, for the journey. But most of what's offered in Buddhism is methods and tools for stilling your body and contemplating oneself and others and reality in stillness. So it's interesting that the whole thing is um, thought of as a journey, you know. Mm. And I think it's just because it's such a human narrative to be trying to get somewhere, you know. And, um, you know, from starting with the Odyssey, you know, Homer's the Odyssey of this just like quest to get home. And, you know, I think it's so... Uh, it's so embedded in so many of our, you know, uh, stories about how do we find that place. Right. And this notion of being lost in commute, which is, again, just kind of a very contemporary translation of these um, ancient ideas of samsara, of the always-on-the-go quality. Um, you know, whenever you're commuting, you're trying to get home, you know. Mm. And that's the reason you... <laughs> for most of us, uh, when we don't love our job um, or we don't love school, um, you know, we leave home in the morning uh, and everything we do is to get back to there, you know, or right. get back to our friends or get back to our family or get back to our loved ones or, you know, get back to an exciting moment where we feel like this is it. This is where I belong. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting because I'm also really interested, and I think the teachings are super interested in the mentality of commute, which is sometimes, and a lot of the time, home doesn't even feel like home, mm -hmm. you know? So I was talking about the book a couple weeks ago, right after it came out in New York, and there were 150, about 150 people in the room, and I was like, I'm just wondering how many people in this room feel really good about where you're you know, sleeping tonight. In other words, where your current home is, whatever that apartment or house or is. And, um, you know, these are, this is entirely a group of people 
that knew where they were sleeping. So nice. that kind of the dilemma that faces lots of people on earth in, in poverty and oppression is absent here. But even within this privileged group of people, only about half of the group raised their hand to say, I really feel at home in my physical home, mm-hmm. you know. Wow. So I'm really I'm really interested in this quality of of the commuter's narrative, not just being a commute to work and then back home, but this narrative of every phase of life. And that's what the introduction goes through. At every phase of life, we kind of convince ourselves we don't feel like we belong. But the next thing that happens could be the moment that we really, you know, arrive, you know, and I'm right. You know, I remember, I, I think there's so many moments in life where this could happen, like, you know, the notion of graduating high school and leaving your parents home, you know, the notion of like getting to go travel, like a more on the road experience, and you're going to find the sacred place or the sacred experience, you know. Right. Um, and I think a lot of times when we travel, we just, uh, as I say in the introduction, we end up taking Instagram uh, photos of places that are sacred to someone else. Right, right, right. <laughs> and um, so, and then you could say, well, it's, you know, it's when I figure out my career, my true calling in life, or when I find the right partner, you know, or when I find, you know, when I, uh, you know, when I uh, have a family, you know, and I, I know a lot of um, folks on the Buddhist path who are, you know, really into it and say, you know, but I don't have enough time to really commit to the practice and study that I want to do. But when I retire, you know, I'm going to really be able to practice. Right. So so sort of commuting to our practice, you know, like it's when I get to practice more, then it'll get better. And, And so this sort of this way of this mentality of looking at life where there's just it's we are chasing the next experience and pursuing the next experience is really what I was interested in. In this sort of, that's the, the kind of the sad, the struggle aspect of our experience. Yeah. And then there's, and then there's this whole other side of it, which is, I think we've all had the experience that we need to train in unveiling more of how an awakened person actually lives, which is, um, you know, talk about this kind of counter narrative where, uh, that's uh, aside from the commuter's narrative or maybe even deeper than the commuter's narrative of like really these moments, uh, which I think it practices about unveiling more where we actually feel like we belong right here, you know, like right. this is it, you know? Yeah. Um, my teacher talks about that, that there's, there's mo- moments have to come up at a certain point on your spiritual path where you say, you know, what's wrong with being me? You know, like right. this, maybe this is, this is it. Everyone who's gotten enlightened in the past has just been a, a human being learning out how to be them, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that's, I'm really interested in sort of the good news, um, versus the, versus the, uh, the bad news, you know, yeah. uh, the, the bad news is we are, and the bad news gets worse because, like, if we are all doing this, if we are all just kind of chasing the next experience, you know, what kind of communities or societies are we creating? Are we really present for each other? You know, are we really, do we really care when somebody is struggling or suffering? You know, right, right. The good news is that all the sort of wisdom of having a good society and a good life is, is, is innate to being a human being. You know, mm. it's, we don't, we don't have to commute so much through experience. We can actually learn how to arrive and let the sense of appreciation and enjoyment um, and connection with others grow from there. Yeah, so well said. And something you also cover that I think completely complements uh, and will further elaborate on what you were just talking about is you talk in the introduction about materialism, you mm-hmm. know, and um, it's a natural byproduct of constant commuting. Right. Um, and, you know, obviously Chogyam Trungpa wrote the classic Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. You In, in the section I'm going to read, you talk a bit more just kind of about the general day-to-day materialism um, that we, you know, we're constantly grasping at these fleeting, impermanent things. 
because we're not okay with me in the moment. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just going to read a little bit more uh, from your book, a few paragraphs, um, before we jump a little bit further into materialism, because that's a topic I think is so important for spiritual and non-spiritualists alike. So just a couple of paragraphs. When we call somebody materialistic, we usually mean that he has superficial or petty values, that he has mistaken beliefs about what really matters in life. For me, a Madonna song comes to mind. But what the tradition means by materialism is something subtler, more metaphysical, and more universal. Materialism is the belief that consciousness is unimportant, that the mind is reducible to the brain, and therefore that the path to happiness involves precise chemical manipulation. Materialists don't believe in the importance of the mind itself and instead reduce life to the pursuit of pleasure. As such, they have grown deeply insecure about their relationship to their own awareness. Every bad choice we make in life and every destructive and greedy system at work on this planet comes from this insecurity, from the actions of human beings who don't feel at home. To understand the theory of materialism, we must have a basic understanding of the subject-object nature of human experience and how the awakest tradition leads us to bravely encounter our own heart-mind. And heart-mind something we'll talk about shortly, too. Uh, we are subject We are each a subject, one who exists and perceives objects of experience within the space of our lived awareness. When a subject can't feel at home within his own subjectivity, he has no choice but to attempt to solidify home by grasping for safety out there. This process of objectification is the basic fuel of our nightmarish commute through samsara, a road trip spent oscillating between chasing after and then rejecting a range of experiences trying to arrange all the right moments in all the perfect ways and doing anything we can to avoid discomfort. A basic fact of reality, however, is that all experiences we encounter are fundamentally unstable. In other words, impermanent. Again, so true. It makes me think of the uh, Radiohead song that they called Everything in Its Right Place. You know? yep. But that's never going to happen. So if you could talk a bit about materialism and what I just read, I would love that. Yeah. Well, thanks for the Radiohead shout out. First of all, they get they get a couple moments in the book. Yeah, wow. well, great band. <laughs> a great band. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, well, first of all, materialism. You know, I, one of the things I find super interesting is that it, materialism is actually the name of an ancient Indian philosophical school mm. that existed um, uh, at the same time as Buddhism was developing. And there are lots of different spiritual and philosophical schools that interplayed with each other, that complemented each other, and sometimes disagreed with each other. But um, this this form of materialism has then kind of come all the way down, you know, throughout history, and had all of these different um, incarnations, you could say. And um, one incarnation now is, you could say, is a scientific materialist who doesn't think um, that consciousness exists, right. you know, that it's just reducible to physical and chemical um, matter. And that's what the ancient materialists also said. They just said it's, you know, it's, there's not really any kind of mind there. It's just, a, it's just physical reality that uh, has come together kind of randomly and experiences pleasure and pain. So it comes from nothing and it goes back to nothing. Mm. And you have this, the, materi- the ancient materialists were actually um, really interested in impermanence, you know, from a kind of, uh, you know, I, I think about this, if you look at the sort of some of the hashtags uh, and abbreviations of millennial culture, like YOLO, you only live once, right. you know, there's a sense of like, that's, that's a, that just like Buddhism, there's a call to an awareness of impermanence there, you know, or um, what's the other one? FOMO, fear of missing out. Right. right. Yeah. And there's a sense of like, okay, we have a short time. There is really, we don't know why we're alive. And when we die, that's the end. So we better cram as many uh, profound experiences as we can into this short time. Mm. And you can really see how that, you know, that feeds the, um, you know, I think of just because Mad Men is ending right now, like Don Draper is sort of this perfect character that represents the struggle with that view of just like, maybe it's all just, you know, pleasure seeking. Um, yeah. It's all just 
experience seeking and there's nothing deeper, you know. And you can really see how that view feeds and relates to this notion of the commuter because you're always just chasing the next experience, you know. Right. So rather than taking impermanence as the Buddhist does or as the awakest, which is a probably a full translation of B- Buddhist, um, rather than taking impermanence as a sort of uh, uh, a real call to train one's own heart and mind, you know, and make that kind of uh, a main priority, the materialist says, uh, and I say this, I, I almost thought of like, you know, one of those video games where there's a lightning round, you know, right. uh, not video games, but one of those uh, game shows yeah. where there's a lightning round and you, um, you're, you have to cram as much into that short period of time as you possibly can. So well, there, I, um, when you said that, I automatically thought of Galaga. I don't know if you remember that game, but old school game and they had these little bonus rounds where these little aliens came out and you had to shoot as many as you could but i do remember that yeah, yeah, yeah. great game so anyways, sorry to interrupt but anytime yeah. i could bring galaga into a conversation i'm happy okay. to do it well done well, <laughs> thank you um, uh so but that notion of kind of you can see how the 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 commuter you first of all how how related it is to consumerism right you know? there's just this sense of like got, what's the next thing what's the next thing have I had enough? You know, what's my bucket list? You know, yeah. do I, uh, you know, YOLO, have I had enough stuff crammed into this life that's profound and meaningful? And it creates a kind of, um, a kind of total anxiety towards life and a kind of, um, you know, I think in that view, you kind of end life with these five, what we used to call Kodak moments of peak experiences mm. And the rest is just like the kind of space between those experiences. And it's, it's a very kind of the, the materialist view of life, one, that there's no mind that can be connected with or cultivated or opened. You know, that's really sad. And I yeah. think also for anybody who works with their mind, it's, it's demonstrably false, you know. Um, yeah. But um, I, I think there's also just this kind of... Um, uh, you know, the YOLO approach to life is you actually, and the fear of missing out approach to life is you actually end up missing out a lot more because you're just trying to cram the whole thing with these few meaningful objectified moments and you end up missing the opportunity to kind of appreciate, um, each moment, like appreciating right now. What that, that's my question is like, what about this conversation that we're having right now is any less, profound than if we were both at Burning Man or in an ayahuasca ceremony or, you know, at a, at an arcade fire concert. Like those are all great experiences to have. Right. But what makes them more meaningful than the, the, the more mundane moments? Yeah. So it's so beautifully said. And I love that you, uh, you know, brought up the anxiety portion of it as well. Cause I remember it was probably, man, maybe three, four, five years ago. I don't know. But I was actually interviewing this guy named Peter Gilmore and he's the high priest of the church of Satan. I mean, he's the dude that runs it. And I like to give everyone a, a fair chance and I don't know much about the church of Satan. So I figured, well, why not? So their whole philosophy is complete materialism, mm-hmm. you know, like let us celebrate the body pleasures and you know, just the pleasures of the flesh. And I remember as he was you know, describing that the sense of anxiety, because it's a constant grasping, grasping, grasping You're, And the only constant in life is change, you know, everything's changing. So how are you going to ever find that any semblance of peace or joy or calm when you're just basing it all on the external. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I just, I usually can find some pretty cool like things in very spiritual traditions. Obviously that's not a spiritual tradition, but I just, I couldn't find it there. Nice enough guy, but I, uh, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So anyways, (laughs) thank you for that. Um, and I wanted to also talk about heart mind, which we, which, you know, I, I read a second ago in that little excerpt, but I want to read another just quick two little paragraphs sure. to set you up for that. Um, I know we're covering a lot of material in, in the introduction, but I feel like the introduction, it just really paints the picture of what this book is all about. So in 
In the intro, addressing heart-mind, you write, The path of awakening views our intellectual intelligence and our emotional wisdom as completely entwined, existing in a unified space of consciousness that needs to be experienced and developed in an integrated way. Mind alone doesn't seem like a sufficient word for this space, and neither does heart. Let's instead talk about the heart-mind and how to learn to live there. Our heart-mind is where we will always live, where we will always come home. Whether we live well in our awareness or whether we trash the place is quite another story. But the fact is that our heart-mind is where we must lay out the welcome mat. What could possibly be more important than taking care of our true home? And I feel like, you know, we already kind of touched a little on that when you asked the question about home earlier. But, you know, this is going a bit deeper. So I would love for you to to talk a bit about the heart mind. That's something I'm very passionate about as well when I talk and write. So I'd love to hear a bit of of your take on it. Yeah, I mean, um, it's hard to find the right word because, again, when you get into this more... um, a scientific approach that's not just about um, looking at the material world, but is actually allowing us to bring a sense of science, which I think any genuine spiritual tradition does, a sense of science to our own kind of emotive, subjective experience of life. Mm. You know, this question arises, which is, what's the right word for that which is experiencing? (laughs) life and the world and and you know in traditional buddhism you know you have words that are most often translated as mind you know i think a lot of people would say my heart um i think some people would say my soul and that gets into trickier trickier definitions of what is that you know what is that thing what what is the soul but um you know the the thing about mind is i think when you just leave it at that um uh, it, it can, you can feel like you're only thinking about cognizing or intellectual intelligence. Yeah. And when you think about the heart, you think like you, um, uh, there's a tendency to feel like you're only thinking about emotional or kind of intuitive intelligence without a lot of kind of, um, logic or reason or kind of acuity that those things bring. Right. And I think the idea is that you need to actually, that the purpose of any path is we need to integrate our kind of more intellectual side that can really see ideas clearly with our more intuitive and emotive and feeling side, you know? Um, So I go back and forth. I think heart mind is this combined word, which I'm not the first person to, to use. Um, it, It sounds a little cheesy. You know, it sounds a little made up and then it's like, well, no, it sounds good. It sounds resonant. Yeah. It it gets the job done. Yeah. It gets the job done. And I think also, you know, things sound cheesy sometimes just because we're so cynical, you know, geared towards cynicism, towards feeling, you know, especially sometimes us dudes. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times when I'm being interviewed, I often will preface something by saying, I know this will sound cliche, but because right. just to that, yeah, the cynicism part. But yeah, right. so anyways. And we say those things, we make those qualifications just because we want to, um, We, you know, we don't want to be hammered by a culture of cynicism, you know. So I, yeah. hope we, I hope we can get to a point at some point where we don't have to qualify. I know this is going to sound cheap, might sound cheesy or might sound cliche. You just say it and it sounds like an experience. Right, you know? right. So... You know, we could use this word uh, awareness um, to to sort of talk about the totality of that which knows and that which is intelligent from both an intellectual and an emotional um, standpoint. Right. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of times people do think that the path is about uh, becoming an anti-intellectual because we notice how much we get caught in our head yeah. and caught in storylines and kind of caught in this discursive anxiety about everything. But, you know, the the Buddhist tradition does include quite a lot of analytical training. And it's not, our thoughts are often very intelligent. So I think, you know, the way I like to think about this is referring to uh, Star Trek, which is um, you need your intellect and you need your uh, intuitive intelligence both. Right. And, um, you know, so I like to think about it as uh, 
Captain Kirk and uh, Spock, you know, that um, Kirk kind of represents our more uh, passionate, emotionally driven side. Right. And Spock represents um, logic and reason, et cetera. And um, there's a reason the emotional side is the captain and the logical side is the first officer, you know. Mm -hmm. So we need our ideas, our thoughts, our the mind part of heart-mind um, we need those things to kind of give us good feedback and good discernment and good um, understanding of what's going on. But uh, if our head becomes the captain, um, we usually lose touch with our intention and lose touch with our kind of felt sense of what we're trying to do in life. So um, the heart, heart is the captain and mind is the first officer, but we have to cultivate them both. Yeah, I, I love that. And Ken Wilber wrote the forward for my next book and he wrote something there that made a lot of sense um, to me, at least kind of talking about the heart mind where he says there's a certain danger to just following our bliss as, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell so famously stated. And what he meant is that he went on to say, you know, you can feel in your heart that two plus two equals five, but we all know that two plus two doesn't equal five. So you need to find that balance between the heart and the mind um, you can't really have one without the other. It's not a, a healthy, balanced spiritual path if, if you're going that way. So very important um, to find that balance. And I know we're running short on time. I know you've got another interview to get to one. I mean, I have a number of other things we could have gotten to. And that's just a good uh, excuse to have you back on the show at a later date. But I think one thing you said, uh, well, you started to talk about meditation and how a lot of people can, uh, you know, there's a lot of misperceptions about what it is and what it isn't. In my own case, you know, very early on, I had a very naive perspective. You know, this is going back like 10, 12 years ago. And I thought it was supposed to be just that blissed out love and light experience. And, you know, everything was going to be fine because I was sitting. Um, but obviously, <laughs> that was not the case. And, while I did have some of those nice and pleasant experiences, I found that more of the time I was dealing with my own painful, dark memories that were coming up. Right. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've talked with that have that similar experience. And a lot of those that are newer to the path, since they don't have those instant results, you know, because in the Western culture, we want what we want when we want it. And if we don't yep. get it, you know, we, we don't want it anymore. So I would love for you to just talk, I guess we could kind of wrap this up with meditation and from yeah. your experience, what is it and what isn't it? And why should we do it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I talk about that in the, in the chapter after the introduction, yeah. cause I think we're at a really interesting place where, um, you know, and I talk about my mother who is from a small town in Arkansas yeah. you know, who had gone to art school and started studying with Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche. And I imagine how difficult that conversation was uh, for her to tell my grandparents in, in Stuttgart, Arkansas in 1973 mm. that she was studying Buddhist meditation, you know, yeah. with a wild Tibetan man, <laughs> um, which is very different. Whenever I tell someone that I'm a Buddhist teacher and practice meditation, et cetera, they think it's the, you know, it might just be that I go to places like Seattle or San Francisco or New York, you know, et cetera. I go to the more places where this is more acceptable, but, um, everybody thinks it's the coolest thing ever. Right. But then a lot of times they will be like, I wish I could meditate. I can't. Yeah. You know, so the, with the mindfulness movement, with this kind of spread of some kind of practice being interesting and important to a much wider secular group of people, I think we've at least reached the point, and I joke in the book where we we're really meditation is the thing that we're really happy that other people do. Mm. <laughs> At the very least. Right. And I think a lot of it is a lot of the problem is, you know, as I say in the book, we don't have most of us didn't grow up with um, this kind of uh, practices or teachings or educational training for subjective self-awareness. Yeah. You know, we're, we're used to knowing ourselves by figuring out what other people think of us. Yeah. You know, we, we don't have a lot of contemplative training. And so to encounter a contemplative training as an adult, it's like going to kindergarten. You know, you don't, we realize very quickly that, and there can be a lot of shame and embarrassment of like, I don't know how to deal with my own mind for 10 minutes in silence, yeah. you know, and, 
And I think certain things are supposed to be happening. And I know what's painful, which is a lot of these discursive thoughts, dark memories, or just a sense of awkwardness with myself. But I'm looking for some way to transcend these into a bliss state. And that's what I thought meditation was. And there are forms of meditation that sort of, that do, I think, further, um, or certain ways that it's sometimes taught that further that kind of conception that maybe I could, if I find the right practice or the right teacher and Buddhism has lots of different meditation techniques which are all wonderful but they none of them allow you to transcend uncomfortable experience you know they are all about how do I actually befriend my own mind I talk about it as accepting your own friend request right um sort of which is an update of the way Chogyam Trungpa talked about it Mm -hmm. for the Facebook era he he talked about it as making friends with yourself right um so you know, I think um, a lot of times we want to assassinate painful feelings is really what we think meditation is and transcend them. Like, could I just kill off my anger? Could I just kill off my irritation? And what's the technique for doing that? Could I use the breath to do that? Could I use a mantra? Could I use a visualization? And what these techniques really do is they allow us to cultivate a different attitude towards the the uncomfortable space of our own mind and the thoughts that are arising in our own mind. Yeah. So sometimes I think, and, and not to be at all confrontational, but I do think to just set the view, sometimes I think Buddhist meditation should be called non-transcendental meditation. Ah. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> the notion of uh, the idea that we're going to transcend our humanity, which I don't think is what TM is about. I'm right. just saying that when we hear the word transcendental or transcend we often think oh good i don't have to be a flawed awkward person anymore i'm gonna go into this bliss state right and really what it's about is like making friends with your own flawed awkward eccentric uh silly mind and using techniques to kind of cultivate a much more compassionate and clear attitude towards that so i think that that misconception about what meditation is lingers and a lot of it's just because we don't have this in our educational background right but i think it makes it a lot harder for somebody to want to take on a practice and uh if if they feel like i'm supposed to be able to enter a bliss state and then they get stuck with boredom or they get stuck with dark memories or they get um stuck with just discursive chatter just a very busy mind Mm. you know all of these are the things we're trying to learn more about. But if we if we have a bias towards thinking that's not supposed to be happening, um, we're either going to look for some spiritual technique that promises that we don't that we can bypass or avoid those, right. um, or we're just going to give up on the whole thing and say I I can't empty my mind, you know, which is not the point. Therefore, I'm a bad meditator, you know, and then we leave it to. I'm really happy you meditate, but I can't do that. And that's where I think that thought process comes from. So there really has to be a willingness to be curious. And that's why I talk about it like a second date, you know, Mm. because the people who, who really stick to meditation they're they're, they have enough curiosity and humor to kind of be fascinated by the perceptual and emotional, um, processes of their own mind. Right. Uh, And there's a kind of, even though there's some discomfort there, there's also a sense of like, this is amazing to have a mind, to have thoughts and five sense perceptions and all of these emotions and memories and plans for the future. Like, this is actually amazing to be human and have a mind. Like, yeah, uh, it doesn't have to be such a threat to us. It can be like a really interesting uh, theater you know yeah it's like your own mind is like a really great theater yeah uh, which i talk about later in the chapter on visualization so yeah it really is and and that was so important for me and that's why i have such a deep respect for buddhism because it helped me to begin friending you know myself my quirkiness you know pema children and cho gim trunkpa and sharon salzberg all incredible teachers noah levine yourself you know wonderful teachers helping us to learn to do that and there's still something to be said to i believe you call it basic awareness or some people have called it uh, witnessing awareness or buddha mind you know where you come to this place of it is kind of a transcendental experience and that's beautiful too but when you are doing it not just for that. That's part of it. But it all of it, as Ram Das would say, it's all grist for the mill. So um, thank you for sharing on that because it's such an important thing. And uh, and I hope our listeners really connect with that, as I'm sure they will. 
Um, Ethan, we'll have links up to your website, to your book, but for those listening, maybe at work right now, what, uh, what's your website address or where can we connect with you to find out where you're at, what you're up to, all that good stuff? Yeah, it's, so it's Ethan, E-T-H-A-N, and then my last name's Nick Turn, N-I-C-H-T-E-R-N.com, and um, I'm on all the, all the social media that all the kids are using, <laughs> all the, well, all the, gen, all the Generation X kids, at least. Right, uh, right. If Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I don't, I don't know much about Snapchat, but um, yeah, if people want to drop me an email and be patient just because I have a little backlog or, you know, just connect um, on one of those ways. That's great. And yeah, I do, you know, I do hope I don't want to overplug my own work, but I am really happy with the way the road home turned out. Yeah. So I hope people are interested. They'll, they'll, um, you know, give it a read if it's, if it can make it into a reading queue. I think, uh, I think I, I'm, uh, it, it's the best book I've written so far. I'll, mm. I'll say that. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to share and, and people have already been really, um, saying really nice things about it. So, yeah. And, Thank you so much for um, for talking to me, and good luck with all with all your work. I know you have a, a second second book coming out this fall, right? I so. do. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, I it, you wrote a hell of a book, and for those that don't know, Sharon Salzberg wrote the forward, who's an amazing, amazing woman and teacher. Um, so, listeners, pick this up. I highly recommend it. It's really tremendous. I can't say enough good things about it. Check out Ethan. Ethan, I, I look forward to hopefully seeing you. I would love to uh, come to one of your teachings sometime. I can only imagine how great that would be. So I'm sure our paths will cross hopefully sooner than later. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Chris. All right. Take good care. Take care. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.